0: Now, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to the throne of grace tonight, we're thankful for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that your plan reigns supreme over history. And that as we study these prophetic events, that we would continue to come back to the basics, which is that history has a purpose, history has a goal. And it is moving inexorably toward that goal. We thank you that you have given an outline of your plan of history to give meaning not just to history but to our personal lives. And that we can rest assured with that hope that can come only through faith in the Lord Jesus. That we can be uh, people who are stable in the middle of historical crises. Because we know that history has moving under your guiding hand. We thank you for that guiding hand tonight, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, we're working through the various uh, views of trying to get Israel's destiny and the church's destiny put together in some sort of orderly fashion, and we have talked about uh, different schools of uh, different scenarios that have been proposed. Uh, among those who believe in a future, that is, we've don't believe that the book of Revelation is already finished. Among the futurists, we've looked at post-tribulationism. I guess that pen is bad. Um, We've we've looked at post-tribulationism. And post-tribulationism, of course, puts the rapture of the church at the end of the tribulation, end of Daniel's 70th week, and, as such, does not really distinguish between the rapture and the resurrection. It sort of clusters those two events together and locates them at the end of the tribulation period. Um, Then we dealt with the uh, three-quarter position, which again, here's the 70th week, and puts the rapture here, and the, uh, the return there. So the three-quarter trip position is the first one we've studied that does distinguish between the rapture and the return, making these things uh, a distinguishable um, sub-events to the overall return of Christ. However, as we've looked at the three-quarter trib position, uh, we're starting to go through some of the problems that have been associated with that position. And uh, uh, what I'm trying to get at here is that, I, I, after looking at the three-quarter-trib position, it seems like it creates more problems than it solves. And uh, we've looked at one of them, um, bottom on page 130 in the notes. Um, there, we found that in order to make sense, uh, and, and I guess this is a point that I want to uh, encourage you with that as you work through this I know some of you are new to detailed Bible study or so forth um, the thing to pick up out of this is how we measure these positions what they do with certain elements and one of the things we're looking at for each position is how it makes sense of the New Testament promise that the church is not appointed to the wrath of God How does it make sense of that? Um, And so the the, uh, post-tribulation position has the church going through all of the tribulation, as well, of course, as Israel going through all the tribulation. The problem with that view is that if the church goes through the tribulation, then how is the church immunized from the wrath of God? Because remember wrath of God in in the context we 're talking about isn 't the isn 't hell the wrath of God that we 're talking about is historical wrath of God administered as a judgment in history toward the nations so that wrath of God, how is the church immunized here well the post tribulation 's position assumes that there is some way some Something parallel to how God protected the Jews in the Exodus, for example, is one mechanism that has been proposed. And the problem with that mechanism is that it sort of flunks the test because in the book of Exodus, there were no Jews harmed by those plagues. But in the book of Revelation, believers are martyred. So you can't, have, you can't make an identity between those two. So when we come to the three-quarter position, again, we ask the same question. How do you make sense of the New Testament promise that the church is not appointed to wrath? The answer given by the three-quarter position is that the wrath of God only occupies the last quarter of the tribulation. Now the problem is, if the wrath of God only occupies the last fourth of the tribulation... What do you do with all the judgments ahead of the time? All the other judgments. They're not the wrath of God. And indeed, the three-quarter position says they're not the wrath of God. They're the wrath of man. And it's kind of fuzzy because uh, the distinction is made that this is the wrath of God because it involves primarily natural catastrophes. Whereas the things prior to that are involving things like war and so forth, famine caused by war, that sort of stuff, and that's caused by man. Well, if you go back in Old Testament, the the theology that you have to bring into the New Testament is theology that's already taught in the Old Testament. So if you go to the Old Testament and you look forward in time at the Day of the Lord and the different kind of judgments, you find God using, I mean, how did he conquer Israel in in the Northern Kingdom? It was with an army. Clearly, it was the Assyrians, 721. In the Southern Kingdom, what did he use to conquer the Southern Kingdom? Human army, 586. Was that called by the prophets the wrath of God? You bet it was. Is that seen as a judgment of God? Yes, it was. So, the Old Testament theology doesn't distinguish between human instruments and natural instruments. Both of those instruments are considered part of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. So, this... This divide, resorting to that separation, um, really doesn't fit Old Testament theology coming into the New Testament. So, uh, we are working our way through those kind of things, and uh, on page 130, of course, we dealt with the wrath of God issue, and on the top of page 131, that's why I said in italics, All the judgments during the 70th week from the first seal to the last bowl are expressions of the wrath of God unleashed by the Lord Jesus Christ acting as judge. So that being the case, we've got the wrath of God throughout the whole period, not just the last quarter. Uh, The next uh, thing, next paragraph is another problem that's created here by this position. The Old Testament, you follow with me on that paragraph and we'll go to the verse in a moment. Well, let's turn to Matthew 24, 8 before we get into there. In Matthew 24, 8, Jesus uses the metaphor of a woman giving birth to a child, childbirth. And that metaphor occurs several times in the scriptures to refer to this time of tribulation. And in Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus is not talking about the last quarter of the tribulation. He's talking about the first part of the tribulation. And so he says in verse 8, but all these things are the beginning of the birth pangs. The birth pangs occupy the whole period of the tribulation. So the Lord Jesus is using that metaphor, apparently, to depict the whole tribulational period. Um, Paul uses the same metaphor in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. The birth pain metaphor encompasses all seven years as a time of tribulation. The term tribulation is a title for the 70th week, therefore is legitimate. And okay, now we come to the next point. So we've, got, we've gotten the problem of... There's the problem of the wrath of God. There's the problem of the birth pain. Now we come to the third problem. Uh, Let me focus that. Now we come to the third uh, paragraph. Three-quarter tribulation correctly holds that the expression great tribulation begins after the midpoint. Matthew 24, verse 15. Since we're in Matthew 24, if you go down there, Jesus is talking about an event that is going to happen in the middle of this tribulation period. Therefore, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The signal is the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist, whoever he be, the Antichrist, who has made a treaty with Israel, decides he's going to break that treaty halfway through that seven-year period, and he's going to uh, express his breaking of the treaty by doing what Antiochus Epiphanes did back in, in the centuries or two before Jesus. And that was to strike at the heart of Jewish theology, to undermine Jewish theology. And the way he does that is openly walk into the temple and desecrate it. Because if he can walk into that temple and desecrate it without getting hit by lightning, he can claim that the, the, he can claim that real estate for himself, that he controls it, and there's no God around to bother him from, from controlling it. Um, so that, that's the that's the event. Now, as you go through that event, verse 21 gives it a name. So in verse 21 of Matthew 24, you see, for then, then when when that abomination of desolation occurs, then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever shall be. So, this last part of the tribulation is called the Great Tribulation, GT. Now, people who hold the three-quarter position rightly point out, they're correct in this, that the great tribulation does start with the abomination of desolation. That is a correct point. But, the three-quarter position, because it is putting the rapture here, and has to keep the wrath of God after the rapture, not before it, and because it distinguishes the wrath of God from the GT, It can't really do this, so it cuts the GT short. Now the problem is that we have the Great Tribulation period throughout the Scriptures identified as three and a half years, but they can't let it be three and a half years because if this view lets it be three and a half years, now they've got it on the other wrong side of the Rapture because they 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 they, they distinguish. I mean, it's not not their, it's not our distinction. This view tries to distinguish this, and they get in trouble with it. So if you follow that paragraph, which begins three-quarter tribulationism correctly holds that the expression great tribulation begins after the midpoint. But because of its confused notion of tribulation, it can't allow the tribulation to last a full 42 months, or else the church would be exposed to the wrath of God that occurs in the third part of the 70th week. To try to resolve this dilemma, Rosenthal seizes upon Jesus' remark that the Great Tribulation has been shortened, verse 22, unless those days have been cut short, um, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. So his interpretation of that verse is that the 42 months have been cut short. Interpreting this as a modification to the prior announced 42-month period in Daniel 12, he concludes that the Great Tribulation will last less than 42 months. Another problem now arises. The text of Revelation 12, 7-17, to which was written decades after Jesus' remark, still requires the Great Tribulation to last 42 months. So now we've got... If, if it's shortened, if Jesus shortened it, and Jesus is making this comment in A.D. 30, okay, it's about the time Jesus would have made that, A.D. 30 or 32, depending how you date things. And then you have John, who's being told by angels, say he wrote Revelation in A.D. 90, and the angel's telling him that it lasts 42 months. How can you say that Jesus shortened it in A.D. 30? So you have a problem there. Well, what is the interpretation of verse 22 being cut short? What it means, what it apparently refers to, is that when God set up the 42 months, that was cutting it short. He could have let it go on more than 42 months, but he limited it to 42 months because that is as much as the human race can endure. Now let me let me expand on a, on a lesson of practical Christian life here for a minute. Um, set aside the details of the prophecy and look at a principle that you can take away and use every single day. In the New Testament, that same principle is taught. Hold the place and turn to 1 Corinthians. 10.13 It's taught in many places in the Bible. It is a corollary to the sovereign omnipotence of a loving God. And that is, in an evil world, God will not permit evil to have unlimited power. Evil is always constrained. And in verse 13 is one of the great promises that you can apply in your Christian life. And this takes away, by the way, all our excuses why we sin. Oh, we sin because, oh, the pressure was so great on me. I just couldn't help it. Uh, This verse, while it's it's an aid, is also sort of an incriminating promise. Look what it says. No tempting or no testing, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no tempting or testing has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation make a, provide or make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, that's a neat verse, because it means that the trials and tribulations that come our way have to go through a screen. Remember Job? Satan wanted to go after Job, and, and God says, well, you can do that, but you can't do that. God has the final say over the domain of evil. And verse 13, like I said, is a promise and it's also an incriminating thing. Notice what it says No tempting has taken you, but it is common to man. And I guess, uh, I don't know how your mind works, but mine, when it's always looking around for an excuse, will try to argue inside me that, well, the, th- the trial that you face, is unique. Nobody else had, had, ever did that one. So you know you can kind of be excused for this. But doesn't this doesn't give us that right? It says the testing is not unique to you. The testing that comes your way comes my way comes their way comes their way. It's common to man. Furthermore, God is faithful, meaning that he that's part of his character. The nature of the testing of the temptation is always underneath the sovereign omnipotence of God, no matter what it is. It's always underneath that and submissive to it. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now this doesn't, this you are able doesn't mean human works here. It doesn't mean Operation Bootstrap where you despise some sort of gimmick and you've got some clever technique for handling the problem. That's not what it means. You are able. Why? Because the next clause describes why we are able. We are able because he's going to provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure. We're able because he provides a way of escape. Now, I don't know whether that's a new promise to you. If you've read your Bible, it isn't. But if, if this is new to you, you ought to write that down somewhere. 1 Corinthians 10:13, Because that's the promise that you can use to say that all the kind of flack that comes your way all the trials that come your way all the pressures that come your way have been screened and there's a way around it i remember a letter i got one time from a family that we knew years ago in texas and a mutual friend of ours who was a christian uh, for some reason um stole something, got involved in some criminal thing. The police were, were chasing him out of town. And uh, he stopped, got the gun out of his car, and blew his brains out before he could be arrested. And the, the family that knew this person had written me, and, and they were in their sorrow and shock over this event. You know, what, what happened here? And i never forget the lady that wrote that letter, because she said down at the end of it, quoting this verse... She said, "I guess he didn't understand that in his trouble, God was going to provide a way that he could deal with it. And he didn't. He ignored uh, a provision of the Lord in this situation. He thought there was no other way. He was ashamed of himself when he realized what he had done. Didn't want to be arrested and have the humiliation of a trial. So he killed himself. Didn't harm the policeman. Just killed himself." Um, and, and that was his way out of it. But that was a neat application, I thought, about a person who saw that, was grieved by it, personally hurt by it because it was his friend, and yet was able to put it together, and deal with it and say, I guess he didn't remember. And she's right, he didn't. He didn't remember that there's a way of escape that you may provide. And the way of escape isn't suicide. Okay, let's go back now to the the eschatology. In eschatology, we're dealing with that very same kind of principle here, the shortening of the tribulation. And it's in just another example, the same thing, that God has limited, the limitation of 42 months is the shortening. It's not going to be shortened less than 42 months. 42 months, God says, uh, you can take it. If you, if, you know, it's not going to be 43 months. It's not going to be 42 months in one day. It's going to be 42 months, period. Because that is as much as you can bear. And it's horrible time, but apparently he thinks that, you know, it's, it's okay. People can survive that with my assets. So, we come now to a fourth paragraph down the bottom of page 131. Other examples of unnecessary secondary problems created by the three-quarter tribulation position could be cited. This view insists that the cry of unbelievers after the opening of the sixth seal that the wrath of God has come is an anticipatory comment. So turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. We worked with this a little bit last time. But th- these details are kind of messy and they exasperate the beginning students of Scripture. And so that's why I go over them several times. They exasperate me too. But I would imagine we exasperate God. (laughs) So, here is the seals. That's not the seals in the water. That's the seals on a parchment. Then we have the uh, trumpets and we have the vials and various interpretive schemes fit these together chapter 6 of the book of Revelation begins with the first judgment look at verse 1 at verse 1 the Lord Jesus Christ begins the tribulation. He begins the tribulational judgment. That's why we say all of the tribulation judgments are the expression of the wrath of God. Not some, all of them. They're there because the Lord Jesus is acting as a judge. As he breaks the seals, he authorizes the last chapter of a vast angelic conflict to take over in some mysterious way that the Bible doesn't tell us all about. We don't know why this happens in all the details. All we know is that the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven in a resurrected body from the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 30 or 32. He went into heaven. Right now, tonight, that human body of the Lord Jesus is somewhere. It's not omnipresent. God, the Lord Jesus and his deity is omnipresent. But his human body is is a human body, it's finite, five foot, ten, however tall the Lord Jesus was. And that's his resurrection body. Now he and his humanity is waiting in heaven for the completion of his body, which is you and me. And all the other believers that have gone on to be with the Lord before us, and believers are going to come after us can be very interesting in history, you know, because you might be the person that witnesses to the last person who's ever going to accept Christ in the body of Christ. You know what's going to happen? The rapture's going to happen. Someday, the last, if there's n people, uh, you know, x million people that are in the body of Christ, when that last person accepts the Lord, the body's complete. Right there. And when that happens, history moves on to the next chapter. And that would be a rather stunning thing for you to be there someday, and you happen to be the person who led someone to the Lord, and that was the last person. The Lord said, "That's it. Body's complete. Boom. Next chapter, please." And we and we, things begin to happen. Well, after the body is complete, it appears that is what qualifies Jesus, because in Revelation 5, the elders say that who is worthy to open it, and they sing this hymn, and the rationale. For the reason that the Lamb, and not the angels or the archangels, only the Lamb, has the right to break the scroll, is because he's done something that the angels haven't done. What is it that the Lamb has done that the angels have not done? What qualifies him to break the seals? Well, that hymn says, verse 9 of chapter 5, says worthy are you to take the book and worthy are you to break its seals for you were slain you did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe tongue people and nation and you have made them in the better text say made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God and we will reign on the earth you have made them to, to be a kingdom that's finished the action is done So now the Lord Jesus, being qualified by this previous redeeming work, he now can be judged. You see, that fits the whole pattern of God. There's always grace before judgment. That's the way he works. But we always misinterpret grace. We always think that grace is going to go on and on and on and on and on. And the problem with that position, that grace is going to be forever, is that if grace is forever, then evil is forever. Because grace is how God conducts himself in an evil world. It's a postponement of judgment. That's what grace is. It's not being some ghoul that he spreads around like sugar. That's a, a fallacy. That's a people common popular view of grace. It's some sort of divine sugar that he passes around. That's not it. Grace is his postponing judgment when he should judge right now. He has full authority to judge right now, and he doesn't. He holds off, he holds off, he is patient, patient, he waits, he waits, he waits, and then finally it's over. And there's going to be a day when there's no more grace. That's it. Judgment happens. So, this is it. In verse 1, the Lamb stops being the Lamb of God of a gracious Redeemer, and he starts being a judge. And so these seals come out, and one after another hit the earth. And you can see in verse 2, the first seal. And behold, a white horse, and he was sat on it, had a bow bow bow, it's a weapon, military weapon, and a crown was and he went out conquering and to conquer. As I break out all over the world of war. Verse 3: I he broke the second seal. And I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace in the earth, men should slay one another. A great sword was given to him. Further the war. The third seal and now we have famine and so on and so forth and so on. Now we come down to the end of chapter 6 and we come to this this section of the text. And I looked verse 12. I looked and he broke the sixth seal. Now who's doing the breaking here? It's the Lord Jesus Christ doing the breaking. And there was a great earthquake. Sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. So there's the astronomical events that happen. And I believe that the reason why you have physical astronomical events in this judgment is because the entire universe has been polluted by sin, not just planet Earth, the whole cosmos. The whole cosmos tonight, today is a a, a playground for an angelic conflict, is what It's a battleground, not a playground. It's a battleground where the powers of good and evil strive outside of our Milky Way, outside of our cosmos. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its leaves, the sky was split apart. The kings, and then we mentioned that last time, the kings of the earth, the great men, commanders, rich and strong. Why do you suppose they're rich and strong, every slave and free? It's saying that all segments of society at this point in history come to a conclusion. And verse 16 is the chilling spiritual conclusion that the global population has has chosen to, to go along with. They said, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, are they atheists? At this point in history, where are the atheists? same place they've always been. They don't exist. You see, people who claim to be atheists are people who have fooled themselves into believing that they don't believe. When, as a matter of fact, they know all along that God is there. And when this hits in history, they admit that they know that He's there because look at what they're worried about. They're fearful of Him who sits in the throne. Just as five and a half minutes after Adam and Eve sinned, where did they go? They fled from the presence of God. Now, why do they flee from the presence of God? Because they know He's there, they know His character, they fear His wrath. Because as guilty sinners, we fear condemnation. And the con- same principle from Eden all the way down to here. And so they ask this, and then they say in verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come. Look at that. They believe in the Father and the Son, even. Really profound theology for unbelievers. The day of their wrath has come, and who's going to stand against this? Now, here's the point. Here we go down one seal after another after another until we get to that sixth seal. And as they see that sixth seal broken... They come to this conclusion. The day of wrath has come. Now what the three-quarter position says is that what they're saying is the wrath of God is going to come over here. The wrath will come. That's the picture. Again, why are they saying this? Because they place the rapture inside this 70th week. Where, and they've got to place it such that the wrath of God doesn't touch the church. So, if the wrath of God is expressed back here in seal number 1, seal number 2, seal number 3, seal number 4, seal number 5, we've got a big problem. Because if any of those seals are the wrath of God, the church is still there. But they place the rapture of the church right here. Okay? Okay? And in order to to make it work, the way you have to make it work is make chapter uh, verse 17 refer to a prophecy that the wrath of God is going to come. Now, most commentators, regardless of what position they hold in eschatology, will tell you that verse 17 is not a f- looking forward to anything. Verse 17 is not a gift of prophecy. The unbelievers don't have some hidden gift, a crystal ball they kept under the table here. The unbelievers are concluding from what they've experienced with number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, and they're saying this. You know, maybe at first when they saw the wars, they said, well, you know, how an unusual number of wars tonight. Well, we've always had wars. And then when they start seeing the famine, they say, well, you know, Jesus, this, this is a, you know, maybe we're having global warming or something. And, and, and then as the, as the seals continue, they say, wait a minute. Somebody's trying to tell us something here. So by the time the sixth seal opens up and they get these astronomical things going on, this is the wrath of God. See, they've concluded that based on these seals. So that creates a problem because the wrath of God then would naturally be back here, but the church is still there, so you've got a problem. Furthermore, if you make the rapture here, then what you have to do is compress all the trumpets and the vials into that last quarter. And you can't do it so much. So what happens is the vials are removed beyond the tribulation in the period before the, end the day after the return of Christ, between the time he returns and the time he cleans things up for 75 days before he starts his kingdom that's where those vials have to go. Because there's just not enough room to pack them all in that quarter. Well, now we have another problem. The problem is that if you're going to compress everything, and on page 132 of the notes, the first full paragraph, following logically from this unique interpretation of Revelation 6.16, The bowl of vile judgments must occur after Christ returns in the 75-day preparatory. By the way, you say 75 days. Where do you get 75 days? It's because of the numbers that it works all out. There's 42 months for the tribulation, yet there's an extra time after the desecration of the temple and that sort of thing. So there's a 75-day gap there before the millennium officially starts. Now we encounter yet another unnecessary interpretive problem. The bowl of the vile judgments occur, and if you turn to Revelation 15, here the, here's, here the, notice what it says, verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the numbers. And standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. This is the people who have come out of the tribulation. I looked. Behold, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The seven angels who had seven... This is Revelation 15, verse 6. And the seven angels who had seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So now we have more of the wrath of God poured out in these seven, seven vials. Notice what chapter. Notice the chapter number. This is happening in Revelation chapter fifteen. Okay? Now notice what it says verse sixteen, uh, chapter sixteen, next verse, next chapter, verse one. I heard a loud voice in the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And then it goes on and on and on. talks about all the different angels. Verse, uh, verse 10, there's the fifth one. Verse 12, there's the sixth one. Verse 17, there's the seventh one. Now, chapter 17. Okay. I'm, I'm, I want you to watch the chapter flow here. 15, chapter 16. Now, chapter 17. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me come here, I want to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So, one of the angels who administered the bowl judgments comes to John and he says, I want you to watch the destruction of Babylon. And he goes on describes the judgment of Babylon. Now, chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated. And he announces the, the destruction of Babylon. So we have 17 and 18. Now it's true that the Book of Revelation can sometimes trace a topic, and then it'll go back and pick up the topic again. That's known. But the point is that in verse, chapter 18, verse 1, you have a marker, a sequential marker. After these things, I saw an angel taking these things. Verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 17 tells you that what's going on in verse 17 has happened after the bowl judgments. In chapter 19, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. After these things, verse 1 of chapter 19 is a sequential marker. Okay, So the second advent of the Lord Jesus is in chapter 19. That's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. The bowl the, the judgments are back here in chapter 15 and 16. So how can you take them out of chapter 15 and 16 and move them all away and make them after Christ returns to the earth? And that's what the three-quarter trip does. And they have to do that in order to make things fit in this scheme. But you see, when you do that, you jerk the text around so many. If you did, had three problems, after you get through doing this, you got six. This is not solving problems. This creates problems in the text. So for that reason and a number of other reasons, this this view, while it was popular when it first came out, is really not caught on too well among people who study the Bible much. Um, Okay, um, we're still on page 132 of the notes. Next question. If the rapture is distinguished from the return, when in the flow of revelation does it occur according to the three-quarter trib position? Okay, I'm going to make another diagram here. Here's the 70th week. The rapture occurs here. return occurs here. You would like, in every position, by the way, everybody, pre, mid, three-quarter, post, would love to have a clear-cut verse that points out where the church is in all this. It would certainly make things a lot easier. And so what people generally do is try to look of the many different groups of people cited in the book of Revelation. Can you identify any of those as the church particularly? Or are you left, they're they're believers, but you can't tell what dispensation they came from. Well, watch what happens here. Here we go with another problem. The three-quarter position selects a textual reference to people in heaven that is closest to and just after the sixth seal judgment. That reference is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So if you turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, there's many groups in the book of Revelation. But the three-quarter position needs to have a group in heaven after this rapture point. then it not only has to be in heaven, they have to be the raptured church. So, in chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, branches in their hand, and they cry out, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around and so forth and so on. Now, you'd, uh, up to this point you say, well, gee, you know, that's kind of nice. That, that might be the church. And it does occur right after chapter uh, 6 with that beginning of the wrath of God. And so you start saying, well, you know, it's this, this possible. But continue reading the text. In verse 13, one of the elders answered and said to me, these are who? Uh, these are... Uh, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from whence have they come? And you would say, well, gee, you know, that, that was the raptured church, you'd think. And I said to him, my Lord, you know. Now, isn't that interesting? The Apostle John doesn't recognize who these people are. Now, you might say, well, maybe there's so many of them that he wouldn't know. But yet, it does kind of seem strange that the Apostle... Who was one of the founders of the church doesn't recognize the church. Whoever these people are that he sees here are strangers to him. My Lord, you know. Now he gets his answer. He said to me, These are the ones who come out of what? Out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there are two ways of taking verse 14. They are the people who are out of the tribulation in the sense that they died during the tribulation, or are they in the three quarter position, the church that's been just raptured out of the tribulation? Well, let's suppose, for the sake of argument, we identify that group of the church with the three quarter position, okay? Just for the sake of argument now. It creates another problem. If you look down on paragraph page 132, the reference is Revelation 7, 9 through 17, which speaks of a great multitude. This view interprets the multitude as the raptured believers in Christ and Old Testament saints who have been brought into heaven. In order to solidify this group of people as the raptured group, Van Kampen argues that the text shows them in resurrected bodies because they are pictured wearing white robes, standing on their legs, holding palms in their hands. And if one could argue, well, they all the groups are doing that again we see the same pattern emerging of secondary problems developing as a consequence of three-quarter tribulations exegesis. Here the problem is the text cited clearly labels as a multitude unknown to John which has just come out of the tribulation. Beside the strangeness of John's ignorance of who these people are if they are the church raptured, now we've got a problem with another group of people cited in Revelation chapter 6. So you look back in chapter 6 prior to the seal in verse 9 chapter 6 verse 9, 10 and 11 and when he broke the fifth seal, notice this other group see there are many groups in the tribulation in the, uh, in the book of Revelation here. now the fifth seal which is where the fifth seal is before the rapture according to this scheme right So number five is right there. So we're talking about something that's prior to the rapture. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, notice same clothing, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed, even as they had been, should be completed. Now look at the paragraph on page 133. three-quarter tribulation insists that this group of obviously martyred believers cannot be the same as the raptured saints in Revelation 7, because the former have entered heaven through martyrdom and don't have resurrected bodies. However, since they were So then it follows they are dead in Christ and must be part of the rapture which occurs in Revelation 7. So the group in Revelation chapter 6 here must be part of the group in chapter 7 on this position. And yet, it's strange that both Van Campen and Rosenthal insist these are not the same for groups of people. Well, you can't have it both ways. So, we've got another little problem here. Finally, the last paragraph on page 133. Unlike preteritism, and this is is kind of a summary now. We've looked at some difficulties. Unlike preteritism, three-quarter tribulation holds to a literal hermeneutic. So we're going back here to this position. It does hold to a literal hermeneutic. It's not like preteritism. that tries to symbolize everything. It is a midway... Position between post-tribulationism, as we discussed, and mid-tribulationism, which is our next position we're going to start. As a midway position, it suffers from some of the weaknesses of both. Like post-tribulationism, it faces the problem of keeping the church out of the wrath of God during the tribulation period. Whereas post-tribulation tried to solve the problem by positing some sort of divine protection for the church during the tribulation judgments, Three quarter tribulationism tried to de- redefine the wrath of God as something distinct from tribulation so it could be compressed down to a few months at the end of the seven year period. As we have noticed, secondary problems of interpretation erupt all over the text. This view also shares some of the weaknesses of mid tribulation, which we are now going to begin. So, in the remaining time tonight, we're going to introduce another position. We talked about post tribulationism, again to review. Post-tribulationism, here's the 70th week, says rapture and return are right here at the end. That's post-trip. That occurs post-after. Then we have three-quarter trip, one we just got through saying. That does one thing. It, it at least separates the rapture and the return. Got that straight. Those are not identical. Those are different. occurring at different times. The problem is that this compresses the wrath of God down to here or has to set some protection agency all during the time of the tribulation because the church is there. This one has the church all the way up to that point, and so it has to do something to protect the church there. Now, mid-tribulationism. Mid-tribulationism is actually the forerunner of three-quarter tribulationism. That's where they got most of their ideas from, actually. It's an older view. Mid-tribulationism holds the fact that that period, the, when the abomination and desolation occurs, the midpoint, that's when the rapture's happening. So it says the church is up there until the midpoint of the tribulation. So down the bottom of page 133 says, a fourth scenario attempts to extend the church age into half of Daniel's 70th week rather than three quarters into it. Much of the previous three-quarter view relied upon features first articulated by proponents of the mid-trib position. In agreement with the three-quarter view, mid-tribulationism distinguishes between the rapture and the return. Unlike that view, mid-tribulationism adheres to the conventional two-part view of Daniel's 70th week. So, these people are more conventional. Uh, Three-quarter-trib position has a really weird view of Daniel's 70th week. Nobody... These people here, the post tribs hold to a two part part. These people hold a two part part. Pre tribs hold a two part part of the tribulation. They just divide into two sections, two, two three and a half year periods. Now, um, page 134, I've diagrammed this view. So that what you can see clearly why it's called a mid tribulationism, because the church comes out in the mid part of the tribulation. Okay, now if you'll um, uh, follow with me again in the text, and we'll get to some verses in a moment. Like all the futurist scenarios, mid-tribulationism must deal with a promise to keep the church from the wrath of God. Remember, see how we keep going back to that? How do the views handle keeping the church from the wrath of God? That is a promise unambiguously stated several times in the New Testament. Post-tribulationism tried to do so by either protecting the church somehow from the wrath of God throughout the whole week or by confining the wrath to the closing moments of the 70th week. Three-quarter tribulationism tried to do so by confining the wrath of God to the latter half of the last three and a half years. Mid-tribulation also has to deal with this problem. It does so by identifying the great tribulation with the wrath of God, which both occur in the second half of the tribulation. So in this case, great tribulation and wrath of God are synonyms for that whole second part. Remember in three-quarter trib, that wasn't said. A very complicated scheme here was the great tribulation was here and the wrath of God was here. Mid tribulation holds Paul's—they're just synonyms. They just—they're saying, talk about the same thing. The central feature of mid tribulation is now. Let's turn to First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In the passage and this there's no debate, this passage is referring to the rapture here. everybody agrees to that. First Corinthians 15:52In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed." By the way, a twinkling of an eye isn't that pretty fast? How fast did you twink your eyes, huh? I mean, it's less than a second. Time it on your watch. You know, a second is counting one very long time. Well, you can blink your eye faster than that. You can blink your eye several times a second. So what that tells you is that the rapture is going to happen in less than a second. you talk about a shock system. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff, that all of a sudden you have all this stuff happening people being transported up to heaven and and bodies coming out of the grave and resurrections and everything else going on here. And it's going to happen so fast that within a second or so. That's one of the most famous seconds in all of history. So, the the feature, however, that mid-tribulation points to is it's trying to identify something. And the something it's trying to identify is in verse 52, where it says, the last trumpet. So, central to mid-tribulationism is an identity of this last trumpet, the LT. And the LT is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and it is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. So, if you turn over here to the other rapture passage, it, too, speaks of a trumpet noise. Now, a trumpet is used to announce things in the ancient world. I mean, even to this day, when you go, say, to Meyerhoff and you you know sit there and watch the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, um, and you get a, a composer, then he's, 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 he splits up the music assignments among the instruments of an orchestra, and you have the violins doing their thing, and the violas, and the bass violins, and the clarinets, and the flutes, and so forth. Everybody has this thing. But when that composer wants to have a martial attitude, a martial spirit to that music, what instruments does he use? The trumpets. I mean, composers down through the centuries do this. There's just something about the noise of a brass musical instrument that is commanding, it's attention-getting, it's somewhat harsh. The French horns, of course, are a brass instrument that's a lot more mellow than the, than the harshness of the trumpet. But the trumpet is, is, is has this... and it was used in the military to announce charge. I mean, good grief. In the Korean War the Chinese were using trumpets to get all the poor Chinese soldiers to, to charge. So... 1 Corinthians 15:52 and 1 Thessalonians 4:16. In 4:16, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, whatever this is, just like a composer composes a symphony, and he assigns that first trumpet and the second trumpet and the third trumpet. Okay, you guys come in now, just at the right moment. Those trumpets bark into the music. And this is what's going to happen here in verse 16. Into the, into the realm of history, suddenly there's this trumpet. Now whether the unbelievers hear this or not, we don't know. But there's this trumpet that's associated. So the LT occurs in rapture passages. Now what mid-tribulationism tries to do is since it says the last trumpet, it tries to identify the last trumpet of the rapture passages and make that equal to the last of the seven trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. Okay, that's the equation that is central to mid-tribulationism. That the last trumpet of the of rapture is to be identified with that seventh trumpet judgment in revelation 11:15 Now they furthermore some of them will identify the trumpet with yet another scripture passage Where do you think that one is? Not the rapture passages, not the book of revelation, but they will try to identify it with Matthew 24 So let's go over to Matthew 24 And I'll just we'll just have time tonight to get into this equation. Matthew twenty four, verse thirty one. It says He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other and surely they say that refers to the rapture so we make the trumpet of 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians equal to the last thing of seven trumpets in Revelation also equal to Matthew 24 verse 31 so next time we'll deal with this equation but that's the central feature of mid-tribulationism. And, of course, what we're going to do is we're going to say, alright, if that equation is correct, what, what, is, what, what does that do with these other textual problems? That's the problem with all of these. Even pre-tribulationism, which is the one I'm going to come up with eventually, um, is not free of trouble. And the problem is with all these positions is we're ahead of history. That history hasn't happened yet. And when God fulfills his promises, he always has surprises, and he always fills up context. So that's the, to, right now I want to leave you with this just so at least we get started tonight on mid-tribulation. So next week we'll work through the mid-tribulation position. Please keep in mind... That if this is confusing to you, don't worry about it. The point is, God has a plan for history. Every single detail will fall into place. It will all be compatible with His Word. God has superintended every single facet of history. And the reason that's important for you to grab is because you're going to have crisis in your lives, come out of the clear blue someday, bam... Why did this happen? And you're going to be in shock. And you're going to be running around. You have two ways to go. You can fall apart and wallow all over the place and totally lose your testimony. Or you can, in shock, come back and realize that God loves you, that God has his plans, that God is sovereign, that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead, and he's going to come for us and you're going to have a chance to see him face to face and God will uh, get history to the point where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying. It's going to come. And that's our hope. And we can hope that because we have an empirical basis in history for it. Jesus has already got there. The the game's over as far as Jesus is concerned. He's finished. He arrived at the finish line. He's got a resurrected body. He's ready to go. He's waiting to pick up pieces of his body, and then he's going to introduce this, this dra- drama of book of Revelation. He's going to start peeling the seals off. And history will accelerate very rapidly, and we'll get to the kingdom long awaited for man. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do love us. We thank you that you are omnipotent. You're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We thank you that you are able to do that which you've promised. And you have promised to come for your church. You have promised that with that great trumpet and a twinkling of an eye to raise the dead in Christ from the dead. That you have promised to transform those who may in the body of Christ be alive at that moment, that very second of time. We thank you, Father, that we can be observers to that great event and glorify You. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.